Welcome to Choose Wisely, the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. I'm your host, Caroline Nelson, and I'm a sheep and cattle rancher. And up until a few years ago, when I told strangers that, I felt a twinge of fear. Fear of their negative reaction. I would be like, I'm a rancher. (laughs) And then I would rush in and be like, actually, I'm a regenerative rancher, which is like saying, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. Like, it's just, it's lame. (laughs) It's extremely lame to say. And if they have feelings about it, it doesn't change anything. So you might assume, based on the fact alone that I am a, shh, don't tell anyone, a rancher regenerative or otherwise, you might think this episode will be me telling you all the great things about this movement I'm a part of and how regenerative agriculture is just so amazing and how we should all be doing it. And that's how it's going to solve all our problems. And conversely, you might think I'm going to tell you how bad conventional food production is and how it's destroying the planet. And what a neat and tidy narrative that would be. And I really wish that I could give you something simple, but I believed it for a while, and I don't anymore. And I've come to be suspicious of any narrative where there's good guys and bad guys, particularly narratives where I get to be a good guy. (laughs) And we still hear this kind of binary thinking in the media all the time. You know, forever it was that ranchers and farmers were kind of in the bad category. And now we're hearing about regenerative agriculture, and people practicing it are in the good category. And I have to say, that's just not what this episode is. And despite my enthusiasm for regenerative ag, and actually maybe because of it, I think it deserves a real, hard, honest analysis. And that's what I'm going to try to do today. Today we're asking, can regenerative agriculture save the world? So let me tell you a story. I was early on in my ranching days, high on rotational grazing and (laughs) superiority. And I was sitting at the bar talking to a friend who was also in ranching. And I described how we were doing this cool thing with our sheep, using electric fence and solar chargers, and we were herding them and moving them all the time. And he goes, oh, cell grazing? Hmm, my parents do that. They've been doing it since the 80s. And I got so excited. I'm like, your parents are into regenerative agriculture? Tell me everything. And he paused. He's like, not really. They just went to a conference once and they learned about it and it penciled out and they just kind of figured it out that it works for their land and their livestock and the bottom line. And my brain is breaking because I'm like, they're not into regenerative agriculture, but they're doing it. And I was desperately trying to put them in a box, good or bad, friend or enemy, like me or different regenerative or conventional. But they didn't fit. This was a conventional, normal, regular ranch who sends their calves to sale in the fall, and yet they're doing all this cool grazing stuff. They didn't fit into any of the boxes that I'd been told about. And this was the first of many, 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 many experiences I've had like this. And... (laughs) Damn, right? Our brains want easy definitions, clear rules, polarity, opposites, tidy narratives, labels on everything. And I've come to believe that within the agriculture world, these labels and boxes are not only 
deeply inaccurate, but they're actually harmful. They're actually holding us back to really understanding our food system and ways that we can improve it and make it more regenerative. So like I said, farmers and ranchers who've been in this category of bad for the last decade, some of them are now being recategorized. If they're regenerative, they get to be in the good box. But these boxes, I am so sorry to say, they don't exist. And we got to blow them up. (laughs) And it hurts a little. But let's start here. What is regenerative agriculture? What is it really? It's a lens. It's a paradigm. It's a way of looking at farming and ranching that comes with a set of basic principles that guide decision making. There is no USDA regenerative committee. There's no fixed set of rules and practices. It's a way of looking at agriculture. And that's both incredibly liberating and freeing and also makes it a bit of a slippery concept and kind of ripe for greenwashing. Here's the general idea. Use ecological principles to restore and regenerate the land while getting food off of it. Work with nature and not against it. Sustainability is putting back in what you take out. Regeneration is trying to put back more than you're taking out. So while there's no USDA strict list of things that regenerative is, there are some main tenets. So I'm going to go through them. Number one, minimize soil disturbance. And what that means is minimize tillage, minimize plowing, tearing up the soil, exposing bare soil, etc. Number two, keep soil covered. So not only do we want to avoid soil disturbance, but we want to keep that bare soil covered. You can see how these tenets kind of piggyback off each other. Let's say you're a potato farmer and you harvested all the potatoes and left a lot of bare dirt behind. So this tenant, if you were practicing regenerative farming, would say you quickly plant a cover crop. You're keeping that soil protected as much as possible. Tenant number three, maintain a living root year round. And so this is kind of piggybacking off the idea of planting cover crops. What that means is The goal is not just to keep soil covered, but ideally we're actually wanting to keep plants alive in the soil year round. Maybe that's cover crops or maybe it's encouraging more perennials, so plants that come back year after year like in a pasture. The idea is that living roots are really essential to a lot of the important work that goes on within the soil having to do with carbon sequestration. Number four, integrate livestock. And you might be like, What? (laughs) I thought cows and sheep and goats were so bad for the land. Well, regenerative agriculture actually sees livestock and the associated grazing and fertilizing that goes with them to be integral. It sees them as a tool. We can talk about that another time, but there is a very powerful relationship between grazing animals and grasses. And if I get started, I won't stop for hours. (laughs) Number five, encourage diversity aka avoid monocultures. So let's say you want to plant a stand of alfalfa for hay. A regenerative approach might say, hey, what else can we add in there? Can we add some grasses? Can we do a multi-species stand? What species can we plant together? This builds resiliency, and this is a big tenet of regenerative ag, that diversity is strength. So let's say a beetle comes through and eats all the alfalfa, that beetle might not like grass. You'd still have all these other species. So you would be resilient and not only would the stand, the crop be resilient, but so would 
you know, the rancher on it. This encouraging diversity tenant is not just for plants, it's also with animals. So you'll often see regenerative ranchers running multiple species at once. Lastly, the sixth tenant, sometimes you see this included, minimize synthetic chemical inputs. So pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers. The goal is decrease use of these inputs over time to create a system that sustains and regenerates itself. Notice the tenant doesn't say never use chemicals or completely eliminate them. Remember, there are no fixed rules. This is a lens. So these tenants are very different from what comes along with the term organic. Organic is a term that's regulated by the USDA, and it comes with a set of clear and strict rules. Some of these rules are not allowing GMOs, not allowing synthetic pesticides or fertilizer, which emphasis on synthetic, organic can still use pesticides. That's another conversation. No antibiotics, no growth hormones, giving animals access to the outdoors, so etc. And you're probably saying like, Caroline, those things all sound like they would probably be part of a regenerative approach. And yes. So (laughs) organic and regenerative, it's like squares and rectangles where all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. So (laughs) there's a lot of regenerative operations that are not certified organic. All organic operations incorporate many regenerative principles. Also, organic operations could also be regenerative. So yeah, there is overlap. However, you can be organic and very much not regenerative. And based on what I've seen of the conventional and organic farming world so far, that is more of what I see. Most organic farms today, they're not exactly like consumers are imagining them in their heads. They're very hard to differentiate from a conventional farm just by looking at them. Organic farming is usually still monocrop farming, and they still have to fertilize, they still have to use chemical inputs, but largely just different ones. And sometimes because they have to use the natural stuff, they have to use a lot more. It can still have a negative effect on waterways and soil health. Maybe you've heard the term big organic. So yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, And sometimes when I say this stuff, organic farmers get their feathers ruffled because there are a ton of them who are doing awesome stuff and do very much align with all the principles of regenerative ag. And I don't want to confuse people or slander (laughs) organic. It's not easy to be certified organic. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. There's audits. It can be expensive. The record keeping is burdensome. And for a lot of reasons, I'm very glad that we have that. I'm just reality checking a little because what most consumers at the grocery store think of when they think of organic is like old McDonald with a wicker basket singing to baby chicks and like hand plucking an apple off a tree. (laughs) Like, no. (laughs) And digging into our food system, I always say, has really taken organic off a pedestal to me, but it's also raised a lot of conventional production up. I'll do a whole episode on that because the research on the differences and sort of the lack thereof between organic and conventional, it's super interesting. But anyway, I really commend the organic movement. And it was really the beginning of the modern day regenerative movement. 
And I'm sure some organic people get very frustrated with people like me who have not bothered with organic certification. We're just like, I'm regenerative (laughs) and post on the internet and don't pay the USDA anything (laughs) and we sell our stuff. Like, I can get why that would be annoying to people. And that's why, to me, telling our story and sharing our practices in real time on social media, it's so essential. Like, I have to really show people what we do and what regenerative means to us to earn our trust. And it's also why, as such a proponent of this work, I do get suspicious seeing some folks use it. I know that there's a lot of unregulated bandying about of the term regenerative. And sometimes I'm like, I wish there was a governing body. And on the other hand, I'm already overwhelmed with things to do. And I don't really trust the government to do this well anyway. So (laughs) I don't have a good solution there. But so like I said, regenerative in its modern form has kind of come out of the organic movement, but it is anything but new. And I want to be so clear that I'm not doing anything radical or unique by practicing it. It's the culmination of many, many decades of research and work and advocates, and so many folks have gone before. I'm standing on people's shoulders that I can't even see. And also, a lot of regenerative ideas are very ancient. So ideas like intercropping, these go back to indigenous farming practices. And also, so much of what we're quote-unquote rediscovering today, this was just common, normal, everyday farming practices 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I was just listening to a podcast by Shay. He's Shay Farm Kid on social media, and he's a conventional onion farmer. And he was talking about how we're talking about like, oh, we have this new movement. It's called regenerative. And he's like, this is just how my grandpa farmed. And also he shared some of the barriers He said he would love to implement some more regenerative practices, such as, you know, integrating livestock, bringing cattle on to graze, you know, his corn stalks, the refuse of some of the produce left behind. But actually, there's different USDA rules where that is not considered food safe if you have manure near food. So there's certain things where there's a lot of overlap, where there's certain practices conventional folks can use that are regenerative. There's also practices they're not allowed to use. So that's really interesting to me. And also, if you look around the world, a lot of what is just considered normal animal husbandry, we would consider it regenerative here in the US, and that's just normal to them. So like, the way that I herd my sheep around today is no different or better than a shepherd in Pakistan doing the same. Yet we look overseas and we're like, look at that primitive farmer <laughs> like here in the US, because you know, I'm doing it on Instagram. Someone's like, wow, innovative, regenerative ranching. Like, so I just wanted to say that within the context of agriculture in the US, regenerative practices are not the norm. And so because our normal lens is so industrialized, and I would argue extractive, here using the term regenerative to kind of explain our practices is a useful shorthand, but I want to be really mindful of context. So I keep using the word lens. Regenerative ranching gives you a lens. And once I kind of learned these tenets, I could not unsee them and how I could either apply them or ignore them with every ranching decision in front of me. 
let me try to give you some real world examples and also show the difference between maybe an organic mindset and a regenerative mindset. So if we were certified organic sheep ranchers, we might ask ourselves, where do we buy certified organic hay? As a regenerative sheep rancher, I ask myself, where can I get the most local hay and how can I get more diversity of plants into my sheep's diet? I might even ask, how can I minimize feeding hay at all and maximize pasture grazing? Another example, an organic cattle rancher might ask, which minerals are certified organic to feed our cattle? A regenerative cattle rancher might ask, and I do ask, (laughs) how can we increase the minerals in our soil so that the plants in turn have more minerals so that we rely less on purchasing mineral in the future. So you can see it's subtle, but a hugely important paradigm shift. It goes from strictly looking at inputs and outputs to kind of evaluating the whole system. And when you really look at the tenets of regenerative agriculture and you take the ethos to its logical conclusion, in my opinion, the ultimate product is not actually meat or fleece or vegetables. The ultimate product is healthy, intact grasslands, pastures with ideally the biggest plant diversity, the deepest topsoil, the most carbon storage. The soil is the goal. The environment is the goal, the real product. The livestock help us build it. And the meat is a byproduct that pays us to do that work. Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. The first Monday of every month, I pack and ship our beef subscription orders. These are customers who get a box every month or every two or three or four months. And we got the best customer review the other day, so I'm going to read it to you. Brenda wrote me and she said, Hi, I gifted the beef subscription to my husband for Christmas, and we look forward to every single meal we've made out of it. Honestly, these are the best burgers we have ever had, ever. I also love being able to watch the love and passion that goes into the food we are feeding our kid. And I told him the story of how it can all be traced back locally. My only wish is that we did this sooner. Thank you. That meant so much to me. We've been running our beef subscription for a couple years now, and I love custom packing each box. I feel like I get to know each family, who they're cooking for. I learn their favorite cuts, and we're swapping it up all the time, making sure they're trying new things every box. It's so fun. For a limited time, we're offering 10% off your first order over $100 with the code WISELY, all caps. That's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y. Follow the link in the show notes to shop or visit littlecreekmontana.com. So I'm throwing around a lot of terms, conventional, organic, regenerative, and I'm going back to those boxes I was ranting against in the beginning of this podcast. And I just have to say, there are very few farmers or ranchers that would fit neatly into any one of those categories. Though we say we're regenerative ranchers, it would probably be more accurate to say we strive to make regenerative decisions. And so do a lot of conventional and organic ranchers and farmers. And I have really come to feel, especially in the beef ranching world, that 90 or 95% of the practices that we do are identical, more or less, to everyone else. You know, conventional, organic, regenerative, we have so much overlap. 
there is about 5% or 10% that we do differently. And I could bore you and talk all day about how that 10% is so important. But what it comes down to is that we have so much more in common than we have different. And I'm always very mindful of scale. So if a gigantic 50,000 acre cattle ranch made one regenerative switch, that would have a bigger effect than anything I do in my lifetime on our small place. I think this can kind of get into the like the big is bad, you know, small is good idea that we have in agriculture where we automatically think, you know, the big ones are bad and all these things where really like oftentimes the biggest operations have the most potential to have the most impact. If they were to, you know, make a change or start planting cover crops or decrease their antibiotic use. And regenerative folks often, we get a little halo, I would say, from people when we tell them what we're doing. And that is not always earned. (laughs) Let me give you an example. So it was my first year grazing our sheep flock. And my father-in-law allowed us to graze this small corner of the farm that had traditionally been raised for hay. And I was so excited to put all my regenerative grazing to work. I had been reading the books and the articles. I turned the sheep out, watered the pasture. I moved them all the time. And that worked great for a while. But then the grass stopped thriving. And in fact, we ran out of grass entirely about two months earlier than we were supposed to. And here I thought I was God's gift to that pasture. What did I do wrong? Well, I had been so determined to go zero input, no synthetic fertilizers of any kind, that I had actually neglected to pay attention to what the soil actually needed. And after years of getting fertilizer, it needed it. I had pulled it off cold turkey, and that had seriously stressed out the grass. Lots of folks I know would say that the regenerative approach would actually have been to continue using synthetic fertilizers at less and less and less quantities until it was totally weaned off. And then you could plant in more and different species that would give that soil what it needed. I was so determined to fit in my box correctly that I missed the entire point. Okay, let me tell you another story. So Justin and I got our first lease. It was a field that was mostly bare dirt, and the very few plants that were growing were weeds. And I was so excited to learn my lesson and apply all the things I had just learned to this new project. Let's do all kinds of different plants. So we planted a mix of grasses in it, and we watered them and waited. We sank thousands of dollars of seed into this field. But (laughs) what popped up instead of grasses? weeds. Every type, everywhere, even poisonous ones that would kill our sheep if they ate enough of it. There were so many bad weeds to the point that it was going to suffocate the good grasses. And Justin, ever the realist, was like, I think we might consider a broadleaf herbicide to kill these weeds. But no, I wanted to hold out. I didn't want to spray. And ultimately, the fact that we simply couldn't afford the herbicide was the only reason we didn't, because we were staring a total crop failure in the face. We had one last resort to try. Justin took a swather out, which is like a giant lawnmower, basically, and cut the weedy crop down. And most weeds out here are annuals. 
if you cut them like that once, they won't come back right away. And doing this allowed the good grasses a chance to get sunlight and water again and start growing. And after months and months of crossing our fingers, we had a very small but mighty pasture for the sheep. Was it okay in the end? Yes, barely. Did we make any money on that pasture? No. (laughs) Would it have been better off spraying early? Maybe. You could make a strong argument that if we had sprayed early, kill the weeds, given the good grasses a much better establishment earlier in the summer, we would have not only made more money, but we would have had a healthier, happy, more covered soil way faster. So this is the thing about regenerative agriculture. It comes with a lot of questions and no clear answers, and it can be really hard and frustrating. Other types of agriculture have a roadmap. People know what works. This input equals that output, and we don't get that. I've heard it said that it can take five to seven years to become a profitable operation as a regenerative farm, and I believe it. And even if you get to profitability, you're never quite as productive as conventional forms of agriculture. Without synthetic fertilizer, we will never have the lushest, greenest pasture compared to the neighbors. Maybe we save money because we don't need to spray, but it takes more labor and time to get anywhere close to the same yields. An estimate from nature.com says that organic operations yield on average 15% less than conventional. So you've got less overall products and often more expensive inputs to put in in the form of labor. In order to make up the difference, Regenerative and organic products will often cost more. And here's something that I really need everybody to understand. If we want a different food system, more organic or regenerative, our food is going to be, at least in the short term, notably more expensive. If we want affordable and regenerative ag, we're going to need some really big solutions at scale. And I don't know what those are right now. Ranching is already hard enough, and a lot of people are looking at that and they're going, uh, why would I ever do that? And I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. But why do I practice regenerative agriculture? I guess in the simplest terms, it's the way that I can ranch and be the most aligned with my values. And my values are that wildness is beneficial and nature has its own innate intelligence. And that if we can grow food using that intelligence rather than fighting it, we will have a healthier world. And ultimately, the entire system and the people in it will be better off for it. I want my livestock to live as natural of a life as possible. For the sheep, that means as much grazing as they can as though they were ancient sheep always on the move. You heard me talk about one of the rules of organic agriculture where animals need to have a certain amount of access to the outdoors. I mean, that to me is the least of it. I'm like, how can we make it so they never come inside ever? You know, and that means different breeds that can handle real outdoor living just like they always would have historically. And living as they would, 10,000 years ago, a predator would have pushed them and made them keep moving. But I'm the predator now. I'm the one that has to ensure their move to new pasture all the time. So the idea really is trying to mold the animals to fit a system rather than have a system and try to make the animals fit into it. Joel Salatin calls this the pigness of the pigs. Like pigs are good at rooting up soil. So how can we use that in a beneficial way? Let's put them on soil that could benefit getting rooted through. All that said, there's no pretending that we can replicate the natural world that once was here. 
There's no pretending that modern-day domesticated livestock are a one-to-one for the native animals that were here. Cattle are not bison. But they're a solid imitation. Every domesticated animal today has a wild predecessor. Cattle came from aurochs. Today's pigs came from wild boars. Like, we are dealing with fundamentally different animals. Our world is very, very changed. We're probably not going back. But let's look at the tools we have now and how we can use them to at least imitate a process that was honed over millennia and that worked pretty damn well. A system that could regenerate and sustain itself. Because here's the thing, today's food system does productivity really well, but it does so while relying on finite resources. For example, fossil fuels. It takes a lot of it to run equipment. And not only that, it takes a lot of mining to produce our fossil fuel-based and otherwise fertilizer. These are not renewable resources, and the system is such that it tends to require more inputs over time. We're applying about 30% more fertilizer right now than we were in the year 2000, for example. But fuel and fertilizer isn't the only input in agriculture. And my favorite thing about regenerative ag is that we're trying to regenerate not just land, not just our food, but the people growing it and the communities in which it's grown. The entire food system overall, we're trying to imagine a way back to a more localized seasonal system that existed so recently and yet is so far out of reach. This episode wouldn't be complete without talking about the main critique of regenerative ag. Yeah, but can it feed the world? And we have a larger global population than ever, and it's growing. And these are real questions when we have such a globalized supply chain where, you know, the corn that we grow in the U.S. is going over to Europe and the wheat they grow in Ukraine is coming over here. A lot of people would say the answer is no. And a lot of people would say, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And that it seems unwise to gamble. Changing anything in our tightly knit globalized world is scary. We felt that during COVID. We felt that during the Ukraine-Russia war when their wheat crop was wiped out. That threatened other commodities like bread. It contributed to inflation. It had cascading effects that were felt all over the world. And I don't know if we can quote unquote feed the world using regenerative agriculture. I do know that it's a way of producing food that requires fewer inputs, therefore it makes it a bit more resilient. So again, remember during COVID when a few gigantic processing meat plants went down and suddenly we had this like meat crisis where prices went up, we had too many animals, they were talking about, and maybe they did, I have to look this up, whether they were just like killing animals because they couldn't process them. I mean, it was wild from just a few weeks of instability. That is what high levels of centralization can do. We get the benefits of low prices and high efficiency, and we get the risk of low resiliency. Nature shows us that diversity is resilience, and I want to be resilient. I want to be resilient to drought, for example. I want healthy soil that stores more water. We had one of the worst droughts on record recently, and at the same time, we had an issue with one of our irrigation pumps, which means our pasture went without water for weeks. It was boiling hot, and I was in a panic. But we still had a fantastic grazing year, simply because of a few slight changes we had made to our practices that helped our soil hold a little more water, and that kept the grass growing. And honestly, I don't care if regenerative ag can or can't feed the world. 
I just want to feed some people. I just want to do what I can. And I just can't look at a living, breathing steer or a living, breathing lamb and think of it only as a commodity. I just want to do what I can to lay one more brick down in a different food system. And that's why I'm really troubled by the recent trend of multinational corporations co-opting the term regenerative, using it in greenwashing, or even in the case of Purdue, one of the biggest meat conglomerates on earth, buying brands like PastureBird, which is a regenerative pasture-raised chicken company from California. Suddenly with this move, Purdue became the largest producer of pasture-raised chickens on earth, which I'm sure looks awesome on their website. They've also acquired Coleman Natural Meats and Nyman Ranch. And while I'm super happy for the payday those regenerative producers got, this does seem to me a concerning trend and one that we might want to watch. At best, these corporations are diversifying their portfolios and investing in scrappy upstarts to help them scale (laughs) and share their tremendous resources to bring pasture-raised chickens to the people. There's probably all kinds of cool stuff PastureBird gets to do now, all kinds of ways they get to expand with the big motor of Purdue behind them. But (laughs) at worst, these conglomerates are using these green brands as a red herring a way to give lip service to the sustainability movement while doing same-same at their CAFO chicken houses all around the country. Or my most cynical self says controlling these regenerative brands is a way to crush the competition. If they own all the options, no organic or regenerative movement can threaten their business. I'm sure their motives are complex and nuanced, but I have to believe that if they really cared about animal husbandry and if they really believed that all chickens should be raised the way they do at PastureBird, Purdue then would change the way they contract their farmers to raise their chickens already under their care. Who tells the chicken farmers how to raise the chickens? Purdue! (laughs) They're the ones who set the terms. Like, be the change you want, Purdue. And we should do an episode on chicken farming. It's really different than ranching and so interesting. But anyway, Purdue's not going to go that far, but now they get to put a splashy pasture-raised chicken image on their website and not be called liars. And that makes my skin crawl because we can't compete with Purdue or Tyson or Cargill. We can barely compete at all. And none of us have any chance if the people who can afford to Don't start voting with their dollars for a food system that benefits more than just six guys in trench coats. If we let the conglomerates do what they're starting to do now, they will continue to bury regenerative farmers before we even really got started, and no one will notice. It'll just be like one more infographic circulating around on Instagram. So (laughs) that's why I'm a regenerative rancher. Imperfectly, making mistakes, learning all along the way, getting laughed at. The neighbor's thinking I'm crazy. And maybe it's all for nothing, and maybe I'll regret it, but maybe we lay one more tiny brick down in Broadwater County to have a resilient local food system for some meat, and that feels worth it to me. I don't care if this can't feed the world. I'm not sure that should be our goal in the first place. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. 
hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. Cheers. <laughs>